You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. Deepening Your Practice is recorded at the Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles, California. For more information, visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class, and what that means is that I'm not going to offer basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. (coughs) That being said, if you find that I'm uh, talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions at all, Um, but I won't include basic instructions. We've been talking about the Manual of Insight, the new translation of the Mahasi Sayadaw text on how to uh, develop Vipassana meditation. And actually what he's talking about here is Karnaka Samadhi. Karnaka Samadhi means momentary concentration insight practice. And it is a, um, a, a practice really that was designed for householders so that you could get directly into a Vipassana practice without having to first Uh, develop uh, a concentration practice and get into jhana. Um, So it's it's also popularly called a noting practice in the West. So you note, that is to say you know where your awareness is and then you soak in to the sensing experience. And then uh, we often use a labeling practice in addition to that where you generate a label that corresponds to where your awareness is in the moment. We've been talking through the prerequisites for practice which are to develop an ethical stance in the world and to purify the mind. And when we talk about purifying the mind, what we mean is that the mind in the moment of meditation is free from hindrances. You probably know the list of hindrances, is the mind craving, is the mind aversive, is the mind restless and agitated, is the mind um, uh, slothful or torpid, is the mind in doubt. Um, In a traditional uh, tranquility path or the samadhi path of meditation, where first you, you develop the skill of continuous concentration, the purification of the mind is to be concentrated without the presence of hindrances, and then you would go into Vipassana. Vipassana is a Pali word that means to divide and see. So V means to divide, and Pasana means to see. Um, But in Karnaka Samadhi, you don't need to develop concentration first. You only need to, to purify the mind in the moment of the single noting, so that it, it creates the possibility of uh, having a meditative, genuine meditative experiences without first requiring you to develop concentration. I teach a metta-vipassana, which was something also that Mahasi taught, where you use metta as the means of developing concentration and then go into uh, the karnaka samadhi. So it isn't a, a purely... Uh, concentration-free practice the way that I teach it. The reason that I do that is because we're all householders and in order to uh, have a true meditative experience you're going to have to be able to concentrate the mind at least 
momentarily, and I found that uh, without offering some kind of instruction in concentration, people were not able to do the Karnaka Samadhi, uh, and so they weren't having uh, uh, a true meditative experience. Uh, and so without that, the, the demands of having a regular practice didn't seem to make sense. And so that's a way uh, of looking at it. Um, we are talking about ultimate reality versus conceptual reality or conventional realities. And um, the chapter subheading uh, that, I, that we've reached is called The Two Meanings of Activity. Verbs such as going, standing, sitting, sleeping, bending, stretching, and so on are all concepts. Since these words indicate real actions and intentions, they are called concepts that refer to what ultimately exists or concepts that refer to ultimately real phenomenon. Recall that the actions indicated by these verbs are ultimately uh, constituted in the mind, uh, constituted of mind, mental factors, and matter. The meaning that concepts indicate is twofold, the meaning that ordinary people know and the meaning that insight meditators know. So, in some sense, what we're pointing to is, uh, again, the ultimate reality versus the conventional or conceptual reality. So, if we're staying on the conceptual side, we might think that ultimate refers to something that is ultimately true or some conceptual construction of the nature of the universe or the nature of God or the nature of there not being a God, but actually that's not at all what this is intended to refer to. It refers to the sensing experience directly. So if you remember the description of Karnaka Samadhi, noting is to know where your attention is and to soak into the sensing experience. So in Buddhist terms, in Theravada Buddhist terms, ultimate reality means that you have an awareness of the sensing experience before it's formed into the thing that you make the sensing experience into. So for an example, <clears throat> you're listening to me talk to you in English. If your mind was not conditioned to understand English, then you would have a better chance of hearing the sound of my voice simply as a vibrating noise. The sensing experience of hearing is the vibrating noise, and the thing that you make it into is the conditioned response to a particular pattern uh, so you recognize, say, a word or all of the words that I'm speaking, but what you're actually experiencing is not the words or the concepts, but the vibration of sound. Is that making sense? So the ultimate reality is the sensing experience before it's formed into the conventional meaning of the sensing experience. And why this is important uh, is because the mind state that you're in affects the way that the sensing experience is interpreted and made into the sense of self and world. Um, and so we can begin to track what the mind state is to see whether there, it's created a distortion in the thing that we make out of the sensing experience. And if we notice the distortion, we can let go of the conventional reality, return to the ultimate reality of sensing and reform self and world, maybe this time uh, without the distortion of a particular mind state. 
When ordinary people move, stand, sit, sleep, bend, and so on, their experience of doing is so mingled with notions of eye, hand, foot, bodily shape, their experience is actually a concept of person or a concept of form or shape. Their experience is not an ultimate reality because there is no inherently existing personal identity or form apart from the intentions to move, the physical processes of moving and so on. So knowledge... uh, and so on, uh, cannot find them. Uh, Let me read you this description of a tree. A tree is composed of its parts, the bark, the branches, twigs, leaves, and so on. Actually, there is no inherently existing form of a tree apart from these parts. Some kinds of evergreen trees never appear to shed their leaves because the leaves they shed are continuously replaced with new ones. This gives the impression that these trees are always green and lush. However, by observing the old leaves that are shed and the new buds that sprout, we can know their impermanence. This example shows that solidity, form, or shape, and unending processes exist only in in a conceptual sense and are not ultimate reality. Have you got this concept pretty well, the concept of ultimate reality pretty well? What we know now from neuroscience is that the uh, ultimate reality, the sensing experience, is almost exclusively unconscious. That there's a delay in the processing that the conscious mind exists a half a second behind uh, the actual sensing experience. So that the processing and the making into um, uh, happens most of the time before it enters consciousness, before awareness knows, or you know what awareness knows, it's already done all of that. And so what enters the mind is not the sound of my voice, but the words that I'm saying. And, and often it's very difficult to pull that apart, to get that separation. So we can infer it. The best that we can know is often a recollection or a re-referencing and thinking backwards. And that's the condition, uh, the human condition. And it's not a fault of any kind. The only time that you're likely to notice the processing of that happening is if, for instance, you hear a sound and you don't know what it is. And that goes on for longer than a half a second and then it will enter consciousness and you'll be able to watch the mind attempting to resolve what that particular sound is. And then I also have this uh, meditation I like, which is called Twilight Meditation. Um, And that's where you sit in a room with natural lighting when it's light, and then you sit long enough that uh, the light uh, fades. At a certain point, you'll notice that all of the color drains out of the image because uh, you know how the eye sees rods and cones. Cones see color and rods see form and contrast. Uh, so that the first thing that drains out is the color. So you, you think at night that everything is gray, but it's only gray because there isn't enough light to activate the color sensors in the eyes. And then at a certain point, there won't be enough light for the mind to create a form out of the visual field, and it will begin to roll. And then the, the mind will make it solid, and you'll see that it's solid. And very often it makes it in a way that is different than the way the room is and you know that it's different 
because you know how the room looks, but the image itself looks just as solid and real as any other image, and then it'll roll and solidify and roll and solidify, and um, and then eventually it will get too dark, and there'll just be the the internal visual experience that expands outward into space. Um, I was talking to one of my uh, mentees today, and he was on retreat, and he said that during the interview with the the nun, that her face just began to flow and fixate and flow and fixate, and that it that uh, I have a name for that, which I call gargoyle meditation. So, <laughs> kind of cool. But other than that, those those kinds of conditions, you're pretty much going to have a most experience being uh, already identified as it enters into consciousness. Some of you have been practicing for a long time, may notice that the world feels less solid, that you that the, the awareness of PT in the body, the awareness of energy in the body is more constantly available to you than uh, it was when you started. And as you move uh, in, in deeper into your practice, what you'll notice, I think, is that there's a flow between very solid and not so solid, or maybe a dimmer, very a bright sense of the solidity, and then it begins to fade, and, and there's more of a sense of the flowiness, the impermanent nature of experience. When a meditator's insight knowledge matures by constantly observing mind and body, he or she becomes aware of both the intention to move and the subsequent gradual process of movement. A meditator also perceives that as soon as the preceding phenomena disappear, subsequent ones arise to replace them. Thus he or she realizes that there is no self that moves, as the sentence I move would suggest. Through his or her own insight knowledge, a meditator knows that what really occurs is the intention to move, followed by the gradual physical process of movement. When standing, a meditator can experience the intention to stand and the resulting sequence of movements of stiffness that support the standing posture. Insight meditators comprehend that the phenomena involved in the process of standing appear and disappear from moment to moment, and the sentence, I stand, is merely a concept. In actuality, they know through their own insight knowledge that there is no self who stands, but only the sequential processes of intention and stiffness. English words such as woman, man, hand, foot, pot, sarong, and so on are all concepts. They refer to forms or entities that cannot be directly experienced because they do not exist in ultimate, in the ultimate sense. As explained previously, what one regards as man or woman is only an interpretation of mental and physical processes. There is no person, only the processes of mind and body. Got it? <laughs> So then the question is, how does one investigate this in meditation? Um, or why would even why would this be an important thing to know? And um, I was having a conversation with the same um, mentee this morning. Um, 
around self, the selfing experience and awareness. Awareness is the knowingness of the mind. It is the thing that knows what is happening consciously and it is neutral. There's no experience of suffering in awareness itself. It's just the knowingness. If you can move easily from awareness into consciousness, then you have a way of moving yourself out of the experience of suffering to a place where there's almost no suffering. This is the great benefit of being able to tease these experiences apart. You have uh, the capacity to sense, so we know that we have the touching sense of the body, the seeing sense, the hearing sense, the tasting sense, the smelling sense. And then we know we have mind, the thing that makes it into something. We detect the sensing experience, and through our conditioning, we make the sensing experience into something. So the capacity to sense meets the object that can be sensed. A consciousness of that sensing experience forms, and awareness knows that it's there. And then when the object of meditation separates from the capacity to sense it, the consciousness of that sensing experience ends, and awareness knows that. The experience of self is a consciousness of self, not awareness. But often what happens is we have the arising of a sense of self, and because it's distressing to us to know through direct experience that there is no solid, constant, ongoing experience of self, as it begins to pass, we jump into awareness, and it acts as a bridge. And then the next selfing experience arises, and we jump back into the experience of self, And as it begins to pass, we jump back into awareness. And this movement back and forth between consciousness and awareness creates an illusion of a continuous sense of self, a continuous sense of the world. And if you can begin to have clarity and spaciousness around that, when you form a selfing experience where there's a lot of suffering, you can move into awareness out of the experience of self and not have to endure the pressure cooker of that self-experience. How do you know self? So uh, there's a felt sense in the body, there's an emotional component, there's an internal visual and external visual component, there's an auditory internal experience of self, or maybe just the internal visual, auditory and emotional experience is enough to create an experience of self. Are you aware of what I like to call big angry self arising? Are you aware of big sad self or big dreading self or big joyous self arising? These moments when you feel that you have ownership. I am doing this. I am causing this. I created this. This is me acting. And then are you also aware of the times when that experience is absent? Um, Most of the time uh, we notice this in a highly concentrated state. Have you ever concentrated on an activity and had a, a, a long period of time go by without really noticing the passing of time? That would be uh, an experience without much self-awareness. There was no self to know that the time was passing and so you don't have the experience of it. It doesn't mean that you're not 
engaged and competent in the activity that you're engaged in. It just means that in that moment or in that, that sequence of time there wasn't much self present. <clears throat> A deep uh, no self experience would be an experience of just flowing energy. So all of the sense gates would be flowing and you wouldn't be fixating it into anything and so it's just the experience of sensing just the energy of that without much fixation. But most of us, prior to beginning uh, practice, are so habituated in the habit of fixating things that we just automatically fixate everything. We make everything solid. As you look around the room, do you see a person sitting on a solid chair and a person sitting on a solid chair? And do you have much uh, choice in whether the mind identifies that as a male person or a female person? This is the habit of fixating. If you were to, if you see the ceiling is solid and the floor is solid and detailed and in focus and look around the room and that's how it is, you are not actually in the sensing experience. You are in the mental formation that the mind uh, has made out of the sensing experience. We don't see detail and focus in a wide range like that. It's very centered in, in vision. And what the mind does is float around in a kind of Brownian motion, taking snapshots of focus and detail, and then it creates the tableau of the room that exists as a mental formation or a concept, not the ultimate reality of what the seeing experience is. So we want to be uh, begin this process of investigating, so Vipassana, to see to divide, to see clearly the sense gates from each other and watch them then how they come together and form this experience. Because between the sensing experience and the thing we make it into is a slot where the mind state goes. And the mind state can have a greatly distorting uh, effect on how you actually formulate things. So if the mind is angry, the sensing experience is filtered and the way that the world looks is infused with anger. If the mind is happy, uh, if that filter is one of happiness, when the sensing experience is processed through it, then the world is uh, infused with a sense of happiness. So when we teach the metta vipassana, we're, we're attempting to be able to, whenever we want to, generate the mind state of loving kindness, not so that we will have an accurate representation of the world, an equanimous, neutral representation of the world, but that will intentionally incline the mind to create an image of the world that's infused with loving-kindness. This is different than a Vipassana, where we want to come into a, a neutral place, an equanimous place, so that there really isn't any filtration and we see an accurate reflection of the world. The question is, have you noticed that your mind state can affect the mind state of someone else? Have you noticed that your mind state can affect the mind state of someone else? So there's this back and forth with mind states. Why would it be useful to be able to, at will, replace anger with kindness? 
because then when you're engaged in, in relationship with someone else, you can displace the anger and replace it with kindness and then be in an exchange with someone where the effect is your mind state of kindness affects their mind state and maybe draws them into a more kind place. In, in, in Buddhism, um, a very typical uh, description of this would be uh, a mirror. The, uh, 2,600 years ago, a mirror was a bowl of water. And uh, we don't experience anything directly. We experience it reflected through our senses. So if the water is still and clear, the reflection that we see in the surface of it is a pretty accurate representation of the world and uh, also ourselves. Um, but if the, the, the metaphor is if the water were dyed bright colors, then the reflection that you see while it still represents the world the way that it is, is infused with this bright color distorting. If your mind is angry, it's as if the water were boiling. If your mind is restless, it's as if, uh, as if a, a breeze blew across it. If the mind is uh, slothful, then it's as if algae had overgrown the mirror. Or if the mind is filled with doubt, it's as if the water were muddy. Um, I like to also talk about uh, psycho- Western psychological states as a, as a kind of filter, the same kind of mind filter. So that, uh, do you know, uh, for instance, what your attachment strategy is and what that mind state looks like when it's there and when it's not there? Or metta, metta mind, you know when the mind is filled with loving kindness and how it affects the quality of your interpretation of the world and what it's like when it's not there. So uh, we, we begin in our meditation practice to investigate this. The separation of mind and body is the first of the 16 stages of insight. Um, this is the sensing experience. This is what I've made the sensing experience into. And then what is the mind state and how does that affect the quality of the making it into something? So this is deepening your practice. So I'm going to be advocating ways for you to deepen your practice. One way to do that is retreat practice. Um, We have a retreat at ATS uh, coming up on Memorial Day weekend. It's a four-day retreat. Uh, uh, Noah and Vinny are teaching it out at Joshua Tree. If you haven't been on retreat before, this might be a good way to dip your toe into retreat practice. One travel day, two days of retreat, one travel day. Um, it'll be a, a Four Foundations Theravada retreat. I'm also doing a retreat in New York over the, the same weekend. Uh, it's, my retreat is from May uh, 26th until June 4th. It's at the Millerton, uh, in Millerton, New York, at the Watershed Retreat Center, which is a lovely place to retreat. It's a Metta Vipassana retreat, so the first four days are Metta, and the, the last uh, five days are... Um, Vipassana. What I find uh, in teaching a metta vipassana retreat is you do a, a concentrated metta practice and you really come into a kind place with yourself so that when you push into the uh, insight practice, the stuff that comes up tends to be much easier to hold. Often you notice in, in a regular straight vipassana retreat, two or three days into the retreat, people are having a lot of difficulty around 
uh, touching into their conditioning and on the metta vipassana retreats that doesn't seem to happen um, the uh, retreat that I'm doing I'm doing through my own uh, uh, group called metta group so if you want to sign up for that one it's on my website mettagroup.org uh, the ATS retreat is on the against the stream website uh, also, we finally locked down the, the dates for the Meta Group Summer Retreat, which uh, you may be happy to know is in July. So from the 3rd of July until I think the uh, 9th or 10th of July is the retreat. Um, we, we'd been doing this retreat up at Zaka Lake for years, but um, this winter in a wildfire, the, re- the retreat portion of the center burned down. And so we found a new place called Seven Circles, I think is it? Seven Circles, which is up uh, in Sequoia National Park. So it should be uh, a really beautiful place to retreat. Is that north of San Francisco? No, it's, it's four hours, about four hours from here and about four hours from San Francisco, so it's in the middle. Um, nice. Uh, yeah, fingers crossed that it works out. If it if it really is a, a, a lovely place, we might do the, the winter retreat there as well because um, of the snow, the possibility of mm-hmm. snow. Wouldn't that be fun mm-hmm. for us amazing. Southern California people to have a wintry <laughs> retreat? <laughs> um, the registration for the summer retreat will be up, I, I think, uh, uh, at the beginning of next week. 